Crawford's very clever, isn't he, using you? What do you mean, sir? Pretty young woman to turn him on. I don't believe Lecter's even seen a woman in eight years. And oh, are you ever his taste, so to speak. Hello and welcome. Welcome and hello. This is Wait You Haven't Seen. It's a show where we talk about movies and specifically we talk about a movie at least one of us has never seen before. I'm your host Travis aka TV's Travis. This is episode number 142 and our movie this week was The Silence of the Lambs from 1991. And joining me to talk about it because she'd never seen it before is Kit London. Kit how are you? I'm fabulous. How are you? I am doing all right. So you had never seen this movie before but you you had to have been familiar with it, yes? Yes. I, okay. I knew the the famous quote that, you know, it puts the lotion on the skin or else it gets the hose again. Sure. Those type of things. And hello, Clarice. That, that, those little quotes, but I never actually seen the movie. Okay. And and why was that? What are you Are you not a fan of kind of thrillers or... Is this not your type of movie typically, or was it just something that slipped by that you just never saw? It was something that slipped by. I actually didn't know it was more of a psychological thriller. Okay. Uh, I enjoyed it a lot. I like Seven. You okay. Know, more of a crime, kind of messing with your head type movies, more than just jump scare horror. Right. Yeah, we'll kind of get into a lot of that, but this is definitely not... This is not your typical horror film, although I would put it firmly in that category. Um, but you're right; it, it's a lot more like a almost like a police procedural in a lot of ways, um, just kind of ramped up. Uh, this movie does have a very interesting distinction that um, it it is one of three films to ever sweep the Big Five at the Oscars. Uh, the Big Five being Best Actor, Best Actress, uh, Best Picture, Best Director, Best Screenplay. And it won all five of those, um, which in and of itself is obviously three movies have only ever done that. But it also was a movie that was released right around, um, it was like late January, early February of 1991, which is typically the time that studios are just kind of dumping their crap. They're like, well, here's a movie. We'll just put it out there and, you know, whatever. Most movies, especially Oscar movies, don't get released then. And uh, so it was really interesting for it to be widely available on home video by the time the Oscars came around. Usually you save your Oscar bait movies for kind of later in the year because you want them to be fresh in the critics and the Academy's mind. So it was interesting that they they were able to pull that off. Um, And I got to say, I love this movie quite a bit. I'm really glad to hear that you enjoyed it. Um, You did text me saying you have questions, and I'm curious to know what some of those questions are. Um, so w- what would be some of your, your questions after watching this movie for the first time? Um, well, at first though, I will say I was confused because <laughs> I thought that Jodie Foster was looking for Hannibal Lecter. Okay. I didn't realize that he was more of the kind of informant to help catch another ser- serial killer. So that surprised me. Mm-hmm. I was like, oh, okay. She's just talking and conversing with him. I thought she was hunting him. 
Gotcha. Um, okay. So you went into the movie assuming that was kind of the plot, that she was chasing Hannibal Lecter. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah, that they were using her as bait hmm. to catch him. Okay. Not, yeah, so it's definitely not that. <laughs> not using her as bait. It, like, she still uses bait, but to help catch a different killer, yeah. not Hannibal Lecter. Um, so that surprised me that he, he was already locked up. My my first question is, why does he have his dead patient's head in his storage locker? <laughs> <laughs> well, so in the book, this is based on a novel, The Silence of the Lambs by Thomas Harris, which was the second Hannibal Lecter novel. It's actually not... so. So Thomas Harris wrote a book called Red Dragon in 1981, and that was made into a movie in 1986 directed by Michael Mann, and it starred William Peterson, um, who most people know as uh, Gil Grissom from CSI, as mm. FBI agent Will Graham, who was the main character of Red Dragon, and Hannibal Lecter is in that movie as well, uh, but in that he's played by Brian Cox. Well... Then Thomas Harris wrote a sequel called The Silence of the Lambs. I think it was 80, I want to say 87, 88, I want to say, is when that book came out. Um, and there was a couple of people, actually Gene Hackman at one point had the rights to this and was going to direct it and possibly star in it as Hannibal Lecter. Uh, but he ended up not not wanting to do that and either let the rights expire or sold them. Of, uh, I, I'm not entirely sure how that went down, but Orion Pictures ended up buying them. And... Um, so they made this, and this was a sequel. What's interesting is that in both of those books and in both of those stories, Hannibal Lecter is not the the antagonist that they're trying to catch. He has got a very similar role in both of them, where he is he is somebody that they come to for information. Um, and in the book, The Silence of the Lambs, I believe that was one of the few. So this is a very faithful adaptation of the story, um, in terms of taking a novel. And turning it into a movie, they they hit all the same story beats. I think the one one of the major changes, or one of the few changes they made, was that storage unit. In this, we're led to believe it's Hannibal Lecter's storage unit, and that he um, was holding. Because he even says, you know, I didn't kill him; I was just taking care of the head. In the book, it's not his storage unit, but he knew about it, and I think it's supposed to be um, either someone else's storage unit or. And the person that was killed was like for a, a slightly different reason, but it really doesn't change the story at all. But yeah, you're right. It's like he's got all this stuff in this gigantic storage unit, uh, including head in a jar, <laughs> which is just yeah. creepy. Um, I think we should really start. We really need to talk about this cast because holy crap, are is there some good performances in this? Uh, and I want to start with Anthony Hopkins, who. Nobody that was cast in this movie was the first choice for the role, which is amazing to me because Anthony Hopkins yeah, weird. just <laughs> nails this. He is so good as Hannibal Lecter. He wasn't the first choice. Uh, I mentioned Gene Hackman. I think uh, Robert Duvall was at one point up for it. Um, There's a lot of people that were kind of tied to it, uh, but he he ended up getting the role and and wins an Oscar for best actor with the second fewest minutes of screen time of anyone that's won a best actor in a leading role Oscar. He's only on screen for 25 minutes of this movie. 
but you can't think of the silence of the lambs without Hannibal Lecter. Like it's just, it's just, you can't. And he has such an, uh, a huge impact on the narrative, but also just the, the, the like lasting impact of the film is Hannibal Lecter. And it's amazing. He was able to do that with only 25 minutes of screen time. Yeah. I was surprised how little he was on screen, but when he was on screen, it was very impactful. Yes. Yeah. You were drawn to him and it's because like Hopkins plays him with this charm and charisma that, that draws you in. And yet he is such a crazed individual and the setup for the, his, for his introduction is great because we've already had two separate characters tell Clarice that this guy is crazy. You don't want to mess with him. He's, he's frightening. She knows him from his media sensationalized nickname of Hannibal the Cannibal. So we've got all this already built up in our heads. And then that scene where she first goes to the, to the cell is so brilliantly done. She, she gets walked in and put in kind of that little, it's almost like an airlock, right? Where the, she goes in, they close the door, then they open the other door. Mm-hmm. And she has to walk down this hallway and she's told he's the last one. And so as she's walking down the hallway, you've got the first inmate and that dude's just kind of creepy looking, right? And he's sort of smiling at her with this real creepy smile and, and saying hello. And that's already bad. Like that's already unsettling. And then the next guy is even more unsettling because he barely can make eye contact with her. And the third guy, they keep ratcheting up the crazy with these inmates. The third guy is just bouncing around almost like a monkey in a cage and, mm-hmm. and says some really horrific things. And then, and then what happens? She comes to the last one. So we're, as an audience, if you haven't seen this before, you're waiting, you're waiting, you're waiting. And then she comes into this last cell and it's brightly lit and he's just standing in the middle of the cell, pole straight, waiting for her. It's so, it's such a creepy introduction. And everyone else is behind, you know, what you think of as jail, you know, the metal bars. Mm -hmm. And then you come to his cell and he's behind this, like you said, it's brightly lit but he's behind glass yep so he can't touch or reach you or get to anything yeah yeah and he's just standing there and he's he's staring at her in the camera it was brilliant to have that be a tracking shot and so his eyes can follow what's going on and he just has almost almost a smirk on his face but not and it's like there's no way he should know what's happening yet he does and so that's making you unsettled and and then just his performance, just Hopkins kills it throughout this entire movie with this unsettling, his accent is weird and doesn't really trace to anywhere specific. He's very well-spoken. He's very calm all the time, no matter what he's talking about. And he's constantly in control, not only of his own actions, but whatever conversation he's being a part of, whether it's with Clarice Starling or whether it's the U.S. Senator, he is in control of that conversation at any point, um, which is impressive uh, because that's not easy to do. But he just he has that, and he has this way about like the character just likes to mess with people. He just likes to put them on edge and piss them off. Um, that scene with the the senator in the airport is brilliantly done in that because that's not him trying to scare anyone. That's just him trying to be like. Yeah, I'm here. I'm here because I want to be here. And even though I'm strapped to a gurney, I'm going to give you the double birds. 
you know, figuratively. Oh, exactly. Yeah, he he was in control of that whole. That's why I was I was laughing when they took him off the plane and they have all these <laughs> guards and stuff. I'm like, he is here because he wants to be. You think mm-hmm. you're gonna stop him? That's funny. Yeah, and they they set up uh, his escape before he ever left his original cell. Um, with the pen and then you know obviously they're not subtle about it they keep showing the pen and him looking at it but what I liked about that was that happened then a couple of scenes and then he's getting off the plane and here's Chilton looking for his pen and he can't find it and so now you've got like now you remember oh yeah that's right he was looking at the pen on the bed well obviously he's got that now hidden somewhere who knows where Um, so yeah I just love that but I love how I love how creepy yet respectful he is too um, there's that great line from Clarice where she says, you know, he's not going to come after me. He's, he would consider that rude. And like mm-hmm. that to me is really, again, frightening, but also telling of that character because you're right. That's exactly it. He would consider it rude to go after her. Yet we just saw a scene where he chewed some guy's face off and beat another dude with a nightstick without flinching. So it's like this guy is not, not firing on all cylinders, and it's it's unsettling to say the least. Um, totally deserving but yet of his you Oscar. You don't hate him either. You no, know, like- you don't. No. Um, and and as the stories unfolded, you actually appreciate him more. Um, in a weird kind of way, like it's a it's a strange. It walks the line of like reverence and and uh, frightening. I think would be the way that I would put it. But yeah, Hopkins hundred percent earned his Oscar. Um, And Jodie Foster too, man! Wow, and she was so young. Oh, okay. So yes, so Jodie Foster was, I think, when they were filming this, probably twenty seven or so, Um, and crushes it. Earned that Oscar. She is so good in this movie, Um, and and that character, the character of Clarice, I like. So I I'd read a quote from John Carpenter. Um, while I was kind of just researching the movie and finding, you know, different tidbits and bits of trivia and stuff where Carpenter said that, um, he wouldn't have focused so much on Clarice and he would have made something different. And I love John Carpenter, but I'm glad he didn't make this movie because I want the movie to focus on Clarice that makes the movie better. And it also makes what happens in the movie worse. Um, and by that, I mean, like, the, the atrocities that are happening in this world are so much worse because we are watching and following and caring for this person in Clarice who is a good person and just wants to do something good with her life. So, and and she's great. I love the character. I like how, uh, how strong she is as a character without having to resort to being, like, physically strong and having to beat people up. Um, she's just determined and smart and capable. Uh, and I really, really like that. And Jodie Foster just, again, just nails it. She's so, she brings all that across and she can, she can convey so much of that in just her back and forth with Hannibal. Yeah. And her facial expressions too. Like when she, at the end, when she goes into that house, she doesn't know that's a killer, but like, you know, besides that, the moth flies by and mm-hmm. is on the cone thread. Obviously, you know, too. But even before then, she senses trouble and you see it on her face. Like it goes from I'm trying to be friendly and talk to you to 
oh shit type yep. of look comes over her and then she sees the moth like you already her heckles were already raised yes yep what i liked was so in the book there's a lot of inner monologue um and it's been a while since i've read the book so i'm kind of going a little bit just by hazy memory but it was a lot more kind of inner monologue of her sort of dealing with because she spends a lot of time she's in a male dominated field of fbi agents and but she's really good at what she does as a student she's still a student at quantico but uh it's all it's all done through a lot of inner monologue there in the movie what i liked was that they could shorthand a lot of that by having her be the one to figure out the anagrams that dr lecter is giving people and having her kind of piecing things together that other people aren't i really liked how when she goes to the first victim's house and she talks to the father and the father is like, look, the police have been back here a bunch. They've gone through everything, but yeah, sure. Go ahead and look. And she finds evidence. No one else did. And part of that is because you're led to believe, or you can pretty easily believe all the investigators are probably men. None of them apparently thought to look where a a young girl might stash something, but she does. So she has that kind of insight too. Um, so I liked that kind of thing. She's she's not as smart as Dr. Lecter. She's not as intelligent as him, but she is very intelligent. She is very good at reading people. Um, she's try, she tries to outsmart him and at one point actually even does. Um, and I think some of that is what endears him to her as well. The fake, um, the fake pardon or fake uh, transfer that she offers him. Um, oh, the deal. Yeah, the fake deal. Yeah, the fake deal. Like, in some ways, that kind of makes Lecter be like, okay, now she's uh, she's not just the rube that I pinned her for necessarily. Um, there's even that moment where they're talking and, you know, she mentions how serial killers like to keep a trophy of their victims. And Hannibal's like, well, I didn't. And she goes, no, no, you ate yours. And, like, he wasn't prepared for that response from her. And so that, again, is that the acting that those two do is so good in that moment because her her saying that line followed by Lecter sort of breaking eye contact for the first time uh, in that conversation. And it's just, it's, it's so well done. It's creepy, but it's such a great power dynamic too because throughout most of the movie, again, Lecter has the power in just about every conversation that he's having. But there's times where they, they get to an almost equal footing. Um, and I kind of want to, I'll go into a little bit of sort of my thoughts on that for the director when we get to that. But um, yeah, I just, Jodie Foster, really, really good. Um, it, where, so now that you've seen this, oh, go ahead. Sorry. I was going to say she surprised him too that she was honest about the nasty things the other inmate was saying. Mm-hmm. He was surprised that she was very forthcoming. I think that's kind of what got his attention too. Sure, like, absolutely. Oh, all right, like she's going to be honest. Yeah, which helps him to determine when she is trying to hide or lie from him when he starts asking her questions and she dodges them, um, and mm-hmm. he can ferret that out really quickly. Uh, so yeah, I, I enjoyed that. So having seen this now, um, where would you put this in terms of like other Jodie Foster things that you've seen? Um, for her because she's said that this is one of her favorite roles she's played um 
it's definitely my top two. I, I like her a lot in uh, Maverick, <laughs> oh, but yeah. it's such a different role. It's hard to like compare, but yeah, it's probably one of my favorite serious roles of hers. Yeah, she's really good. Uh, have you seen Panic Room? Because if you haven't, I recommend that one. Uh, she's in that. And... No, it's on my list. I just haven't sat to watch it, but that looks really good too. It's quite good. It's David Fincher, so you know it's going to be good anyway. Um, and she's really good in it. I I definitely put this in the top one. Now, another cool thing was uh, the character of Clary Starling was a huge influence on uh, a guy named Chris Carter who made a little show called The X-Files. And you definitely oh, can see okay. that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. she Clarice was a big influence on the character of Dana Scully. Um, so that, that to me is also a really cool thing because I love The X-Files. So the fact that this movie and book kind of helped birth that um, is great. So, yeah, Jodie Foster and Anthony Hopkins just, I mean, like, epic level acting for me. Um, this is one of my favorite Anthony Hopkins roles. He's played Hannibal Lecter three times. Uh, this is easily the best of the three. Um, he played him in uh, the sequel to this, which was also a sequel book called Hannibal. Um, and then they did make another version of Red Dragon uh, with Anthony Hopkins in it. The problem I had with Red Dragon was not that they were doing the prequel, but the fact that they did the prequel like 12... Uh, I think it was 11 or 12 years after this movie came out. And so it was hard to buy that it took place before this movie because Anthony Hopkins looked so much older by that point um, that it was rough to be like, yeah, okay, this is supposed to happen before Silence of the Lambs. Um, that's another creepy one, by the way. Uh, if you want to watch a, a movie with a weird... Because, uh, boy, Thomas Harris writes, writes some weird serial killers. Uh, let me tell you. Um, so Ted Levine played Buffalo Bill in this. Uh, and what did you think of Buffalo Bill? He was definitely odd. I definitely had to look up the wiki, though, in like the book and read more about his character mm-hmm. because I felt like there were some gaps missing. Um, okay. Like she figures out that he knew his first victim. Uh, Frederica, but it doesn't say how he knew her. Well, it doesn't explicitly. It says he saw her every day, like that she puts that together. That's why she's like, okay, yeah, he knew her. But when I read the Wikipedia from the extracting it from the book, it says they worked together in the sewing shop. Mm -hmm. That that's why you saw her every day. And I'm like, okay, that makes sense. So, yeah, basically we're meant to kind of try and infer that because she puts the pieces together that, oh, yeah, you know, he would go after somebody that he sees a lot. And that's where, you know, her figuring out that, no, he's making a skin suit. That's why he's taking the skin. Um, Mm -hmm. So, yeah, we never find out exactly that, you know, she worked at a sewing shop or he did or anything like that. but, But we're sort of meant to infer like that. They knew each other somehow, and I'm pretty sure he's the one that took the Polaroids of her that Clarice finds. That's my guess, is that he took yeah. those. Um, yeah, and she seemed like she was willing, you know, a young girl, you know, else she wouldn't have hidden them. Right. You know. Yeah, it's... But th- his, his it, character, yeah, it wasn't explained. 
No. <laughs> and, and his character is, is left ambiguous on purpose to, to make him even creepier because he could be, you know, just about anybody. Um, the thing with him that I liked was that you couldn't pigeonhole him into one any one type of kind of psychotic character. Uh, and I liked how Lecter even pinpointed, like, you know, he's he's been through a lot. He's been through trauma and he hates his identity, but he can't, he doesn't really latch on to any other single sort of identity or psychosis. Um, you know, the, the whole, the whole bit where they kind of run through, like, um, Clarice says, well, wait, so the women's clothing and whatnot, is he a transvestite? And, uh, is the term that they use there, but, um, and Lecter's like, well, no, he's not. He's he doesn't ha- he hates his identity, but he can't quite figure it out. And and if you watch it again, the scenes where he are in his house, pay attention to some of the background stuff because there's a lot of like varying group sort of identities that it's almost like he tried to figure it out. Like there's some Nazi type proper uh, paraphernalia laying around, and I think there was a couple. I can't remember the other ones now. Um, but there were like other sort of group identities, almost like he tried to float from group to group and none of them seemed to match for him. He was trying to find a place to belong. Yeah, I noticed that on the bedspread and I was looking at the mannequins and like he had so many different, mm-hmm. even f- feminine ideas. Like he couldn't latch. I, I did gather that, that he couldn't latch onto one. Yeah. and Because and- he didn't know where he belonged. <laughs> mm-hmm. He didn't. And so his, you know, where he went was to a very violent place of, okay, so I can't get uh, reassignment surgery. No one will do that. And that was another, you know, obviously big clue for them to find him. So he's like, I'll just do it myself, sort of, uh, in his own mind. That's how it would work because he's very broken and he's very violent. Um, and they sort of, the character's kind of a mishmash of some uh, real life serial killers. Um, that were were sort of amalgamated into James Gum, uh, Ted. I think it was Ted Bundy, um, mm-hmm. and uh, uh, Ed Gein or Ed Gain was another one. Mm-hmm. Um, and I did like the introduction of him, where he's trying to carry the couch because uh, it's very. Oh, again, I was screaming, going, "No, <laughs> it's a setup! Don't like because she has that instinct of something's not right here." Mm-hmm. And she hesitates, and I'm like, you need to follow your gut. Just go in the house. Just go in the house. Yeah. Yep. And and that's a thing where, again, in this movie, we are put in the position of being sort of the omnipotent audience, so we know things these characters don't. And that's something that horror movies do so, do so well, is they put us in a position where it's uncomfortable for us as an audience because we know don't do that. That guy's not safe. You should know that. And they give you that hint that, like, no, she's she's got reservations about going to help this person, but she's a good person at heart. And he has – that also kind of lets us know because by this point we sort of know that he he doesn't just pick people at random. So he's obviously watched her for a little while to sort of figure out who she is and if she is somebody that he can get. And then this that flip, that moment where he gets her into the back of the van – and he just flips out and beats her with that cast and then closes the door. It's like, oof, oof, that's an effective way to, to sort of introduce your your bad you know, your your baddie. Uh and Yeah, ooh. I was ready for it though. I was just holding my breath, you know, because you knew it was coming. Like Well, that's what he's this knocking movie... her out or doing something. <laughs> yeah, that's what this movie does so well, is it doesn't rely on a jump scare. It's 
like you can see what's coming from a mile away. And so now you're just waiting for it to happen and the tension is building. And that's, I think, what makes this movie, for me, one of those that's really unsettling is because you know and you can't do anything about it. You're just strapped in for the ride. Um, and Yeah, yeah, I was screaming at my iPad and it was like, <laughs> I agree. It was frustrating when I'm like, I can't do anything. I want to knock some sense into you. Did he see her on TV, I wonder? That was my other one of my other questions of... It's going along Hannibal Lecter's line of scene that because Ohio and Tennessee aren't like that close. <laughs> um, no, I mean, it's it's possible. I, I think what they were trying to sort of portray is that he after his first victim, which was close by, he kept trying to branch out and and not leave a pattern. Mm. So because he's also sort of portrayed as he's supposed to be fairly intelligent. Um, smart enough anyway to kind of be able to get away with this five times at this point um, and not get caught yet. And some of that is kind of branching out and going to different areas. So, yeah, it's it's one of those things. I mean, he was smart enough to move into the house of somebody that was in his hometown that he knows, um, mm-hmm. but yet send the FBI somewhere completely different, different state even, because the FBI was in Illinois. They were 400 miles away. So, right. Um, but yeah, just, and Ted Levine, I mean, just creepy. Plus his voice, Ted Levine has such a deep kind of, he can have such a deep and smooth voice. But then when he would talk to her when she was in the pit and telling her to put the lotion on her, on her skin or its skin. Um, and he's, you know, he changes his timbre a little bit. He's up a little bit higher and trying to maybe sound a little more feminine. Um, but then when he snaps and yells at her, his voice drops right back down. Uh, he just, ooh, ooh, he, he can get very, very creepy. Um, and for anybody that's ever seen Monk, that's the same character, that's the same actor uh, that was the police sergeant, I think, in Monk. Um, but uh, Ted Levine just, I mean, surprised that he didn't get nominated for anything other than, you know, creepiest character of the year, I guess, but... Somehow he managed to out-creep. He played crazy well. <laughs> yes, he did. He managed to be creepier than Hannibal Lecter somehow. Um, mm-hmm. And that's not easy to do because I don't want to meet either one of them in a well-lit alley, let alone a dark alley. So, uh, And there are some other uh, good um, kind of side characters in this that, uh, I, that I really liked uh, actors-wise. You had Scott Glenn was Jack Crawford. Um, Scott Glenn, who I've seen in a lot of things, you probably have too. Um, the thing that I liked about the way that they portrayed his character is he starts off almost a little, I don't know exactly how to put it, but you almost don't want to trust him because he's too sort of slick and kind of, does that make sense? Yeah, he's he's trying to build her like he's like reading her resume basically mm-hmm. you know and building her up too much flattery too much flattery yeah but then as the as things progress you kind of realize oh no he's actually not a bad guy like he didn't feel like he apologized to her about the whole when they landed in the the town in west uh, virginia and he goes to the sheriff and says hey can we you know talk about this in private and they go in the other room and leave her out in the other in that outer room 
And then later on, he apologizes to her like, hey, you know, I was that was just a smokescreen because he needs to he wasn't going to listen otherwise. And she calls him out on it. Again, another thing that I like about Clarice is that character doesn't take shit. She's like, no, 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 no. That's not cool. People look, you know, look to you for what to do. You need to be better than that. And he's like, point taken. And he so I, I appreciated that. I did too. And um I did like she she did kick all those men out of the room. Like yes. They were all waiting for, you know, the autopsy, which I thought was weird being done in a funeral home. I'm like, why a funeral's going on? No, oh, that's a like, small small town for you though. It might that might have been the only facility they had like that. Maybe. I grew up in a small town. We still had a medical examiner's office. It's hard, but hard I did to like say. I did like she took charge. She kicked him all and he was on the phone with the facts and he did smile and give a smirk like, yeah, yeah, you go right on. Like, you know, he didn't contradict her or anything. He was he was proud of her. You could tell. Yep. Yeah. She took charge and said, you can go. (laughs) It's it's great because, again, that's a character that in a in a lesser story would be the tropey like, uh, you know. I'm the man and I'm going to run things type of thing and, and treat her poorly like most of the other male characters in this movie and story kind of do. And he doesn't. And I like where even, you know, towards the end, he's like, look, you are the reason we found this guy. No one is going to forget that. He's got her back. He is proud of her. It's almost a little fatherly. Um, and I, I, I appreciate that. I appreciate that out of the character. I think some of it too is like Scott Glenn as an actor can be that character or he can be somebody shady. He's good at both. So from an audience perspective, from me watching it, I'm never like Scott Glenn is always one of those where you're like, yeah, he could go either way. He could be a good guy or a bad guy. Um, and I'd believe it either way. So, but, uh, but good casting again, um, whoever cast this just, just did such a good job between Jodie Foster, Anthony healed as uh, Dr. Chilton, Oh boy, did I just want to smack that smirk off his face from the second he shows up on screen, right? Yeah, I wasn't sad that Hannibal Lecter's going to kill him. <laughs> that is the uh that is the catharsis at the end of the movie, right? Um ah, and and there again is an actor who he can do that so well. Like I've seen him in other movies. He was in a movie called Deep Rising where he plays uh, another smarmy character. Smarmy. He's good at smarmy. And you yeah, just I- don't like him. Throughout the, you know, and any scene that he's in. I swear, like, I went through his IMDb list and I didn't really recognize things that I would know him from. Like, mm-hmm. I've heard of different things, but I swear I've seen him and he always plays sw- smarvy jerks like that. Yeah. Yeah, he's sort of, uh, he is an actor who is one of those that guys or that girl mm-hmm. where you've, you know him, you've seen him in something, but unless you're me, and have some weird thing where you try to learn every actor's name. You don't know his name. You're just like, I, he was in that thing. He was, he did the whatever, you know. He's that type of an actor. Um, he also kind of looks like a Wish.com Nick Nolte, just a little bit. Um, <laughs> which, you know, that, that happens. Uh, yeah. But, yeah, he just, um, oh, smarmy, blah, 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 slimy. Don't yeah. like him. The There was a small um, part, the actor, when she first goes into the to see Hannibal Lecter into the jail, uh-huh. um, Barney. He is yeah. a cop in Thomas Crown Affair. Yep. And 
it was one of those, I know this guy's voice. What do oh, I yeah. know him from? Because I've seen that movie a thousand times. So. <laughs> yep. Frankie Faison. Uh, he, yes. he has been He's in great. a ton of stuff, whether it's he was in Maximum Overdrive, he was in Coming to America, Do the Right Thing. Yeah. Um, he actually played the character of Barney again in the sequel to this Hannibal. Uh, yeah, he's great. And again, for somebody who's on screen for a couple of minutes at most, like he barely is in this movie. But when I see Frankie Faison, I'm like, Hey, it's Barney. Like I, I equate him to this character, but you're right. He's for you. It's Thomas Crown affair. And that's, I love that. And he, he, it's his face. He's got that face and that voice. There's something about, yeah, I love his voice. Yeah, I recognized his voice first, and that's what made me pay attention. Like, I I know this voice. Why do I know you? <laughs> uh, I mentioned Ted Levine, and again, Ted Levine just, he's not a creepy guy either. Like, it's weird, but he can go creepy so well. Um, and I just, I like Ted Levine for sort of, he's got some range to him. Um, I also, the, uh, He's again only on screen for like a minute, but the the one medical examiner um, whose uh, name is Lamar in the movie Tracy Walters. Yes, yep, uh, I have him down too. Yep, it's Bob. It's Bob from Batman. Um, or he's a uh, Cookie Conan the Destroyer. Oh yeah, he's in I, Conan the Destroyer as. I now. forget he's in that because he's I, also from uh, Aaron Brockovich. He's the one that she meets in the bar. That he's the one that gives her the inside information about PP and L. Oh, that's right. See, that's that's such a cool thing with like, especially supporting actors and kind of character actors like like Tracy Walter. You remember him from those movies. I remember him from Batman and City Slickers mm-hmm. because he was Cookie in City Slickers, and he had the best line in that entire movie, which is as he's pushing his cart of food, and he says, "Look, the food's hot, it's brown, and there's plenty of it." And I was mm-hmm. just like, "That's the perfect." type of uh, like I just love that so you got him um, so I love seeing him anytime he pops up and stuff Um, and uh, also um, what was the other one oh Paul Lazar who's uh, Dr. Pilcher um, the one with the the weird eye that hits on her Mm -hmm. Um, he again very unique look Uh, I saw he I've actually talked about him just recently in the host a few weeks back Uh, he has a small role in that what I, he's interesting just because he's got that weird look in the the one eye, but but also like I like him, but the character. What I liked about the character is he's not subtle at all. And when she calls him out, like, "Are you hitting on me?" He's just, yes. <laughs> he just just comes right out with it, uh, and I don't know why that just made me laugh. Um, for yeah, it, I I appreciate it too, but she also seemed to. That was the only time she seemed receptive to it to yes. reciprocate, you know, mm-hmm. that the, him flirting with her, that was the only person it was wanted from <laughs> her welcome, you know? Yeah. Um, and, and I think if memory serves in the book it is either explicitly said or at least hinted that she ends up kind of in a pseudo relationship with him at the end of some but kind. That made me worried because I didn't think Hannibal Lecter would like that. It's hard to say. You're right. Um, but yeah, he, he's awesome. Also, um, the TV Anchorman um, was just recently in a movie that uh, I covered um, when we did uh, Necronomicon, Book of the Dead, a few weeks back. Mm. Um, that Anchorman is played by Oba Babatunde, and he was in Necronomicon. He was also in 
Uh, I want to say he was in Coming to America as well, but I could be wrong on that. But he's been in a ton of stuff too. I mean, he's got pff, wow, a couple of hundred credits probably, 168 credits. Yeah, I was trying to look at the the people like all around because I'm like I'm sure the all of these little these people running around were in other things that I've seen before. Mm-hmm. So I was trying to find them, but I only had those couple. And Faye mentions in the chat uh, that the that guy for her is um, the guy that plays Damien Dark in the Arrowverse. Neil McDonough is the actor's name you're looking for. Neil McDonough mm-hmm. in his piercing blue eyes uh, is awesome. And I love him in everything. Um, I did um, I did find it interesting for like, you know, you have to take everything of the time that it was filmed. But mm-hmm. the EMTs that come in when Hannibal Lecter attacks the policemen and everything, yep. they come in, they're wearing suits. Yeah. Like, that just thought was that was strange. odd. <laughs> it was you know, a little strange. It, it would be so uncomfortable. Like your adrenaline's running, like you're trying to get IV, like, and you got this heavy wool coat on and, <laughs> yeah. you know, shirt and tie. Like it was making me uncomfortable. And same with her when she's running around with the coat. I was finally happy when she threw that damn coat off. <laughs> Like, how yep. are you going to sh- run around with a gun in this big bulky coat and she was weighted down by her purse and her briefcase? And I'm like, leave those things in a damn car. Like, Plus, like, Jodie Foster is not a large person at all. She's a tiny little person. So that coat probably weighed as much as she did. Yeah. Um, I did have a chick in a bucket. It was the red shirts that are in the elevator in the beginning. <laughs> and they show how short she is. Yep. Because... There's all these tall men in red shirts, and she gets in the elevator to, when she first sees Crawford, and then she gets off on the floor, and they're all gone. Yep, <laughs> that was great. <laughs> they disappeared. And that you're right. That that really showed how tiny she is too. To put her right in the middle of all that and have them all wearing red, that was a smart visual choice because it really mm-hmm. contrasted her with her her dark clothing. Um, a couple other cameos I have to mention because these were great. Um, the FBI director who has literally one scene where he's on the phone was Roger Corman, uh, director and producer. Um, and I thought that was a cool little one. Uh, also, um, George Romero has a cameo, uh, in a, a blink and you'll miss it cameo when Clarice goes back and is talking to Lecter in his temporary cell. And when, uh, when the, uh, um, doctor and the security guards come to take her away, one of them is George Romero, which is oh, also okay. really cool. Uh, Chris Isaac, who's best known as a singer-songwriter, uh, including... I was wondering, I saw him in the credits, and I was like, that can't be the singer Chris Isaac. Yep, as a singer Chris Isaac, as the SWAT commander. Um, and oh, wow. the sergeant with the big mustache that's on the walkie-talkie the whole time mm-hmm. is played by Danny Darst, who is apparently a country music uh, musician. Singer songwriter. Um, I don't know oh, him. He from did that. great. I liked him a lot. I liked him a lot too. But I, I'm telling you right now, look up the name Kenny Maine, M A Y N E, and tell me that Danny Darst in this movie doesn't look like Kenny Maine. Because it's kind of like it took me a second. Kenny Maine was a Sports Center anchor for a long time, um, and it oh, was he just, does. Yes, just it's, without it's, the mustache. It's weird. <laughs> they could be brothers. It's creepy. So. And I always forget that. I'm like, no, it's not Kenny Maine, but it just looks like him. It's his doppelganger. Um, yeah. Uh, I was impressed when he was smart and he's like, he notices the blood dripping and he goes, yep, we think he's on the second floor. 
That's it. Over. So that was one of the things in this. And granted, yes, it is somewhat being told from the perspective of the FBI. But the police in this movie and the, the law enforcement people in general are competent. And why I think that matters is they are shown as being competent, but Hannibal Lecter is just outwits them all. He's just better They're than them. Competent, but like when they they have too much faith behind their guns and the handcuffs that well once they have him handcuffed in that temporary they're like oh okay everything's okay i don't have to watch him i can put my back to him i think so but i think also that's meant to be the procedure because he shouldn't have had a, a small shard of metal that he could use to pick the cuffs and well, he's no he's not like he snuck that in and so by their procedures, they were following everything correctly, including making him sit on the floor and be handcuffed to the bars. And then they don't take weapons in with them. Because if you notice, the uh, the sergeant who was played by Charles Napier, Lieutenant Boyle, um, Charles Napier, by the way, another one of those great character actors who uh, went on to do um, one of my favorite things he did was in uh, The Critic, the John Lovitz animated show. He plays his boss. Mm, yes. He does the voice of, uh, of the billionaire boss whose name is escaping me now. Um, but he he was great. But if you notice, before he entered in with the food, he took his weapon and handed it to the other guard. He took his mace and handed it to the other guard. And I think that was the procedure of we handcuff him to the floor so he can't move and we don't take in anything that he could take off our person and do anything with. Yeah, I just think they let their guard down a little too much, though. Like, they followed procedure and were smart, but they still let their guard down when they shouldn't. Yeah, yeah, I mean, sure. They definitely did that, but I think that if it wasn't for the fact that they had this ingrained sort of, well, this is the procedure and there's no way, because he also hadn't, he had been in there for how long and hadn't done anything. So he lulled them into that false sense of security oh, yeah. as well. He did, oh yeah, definitely. So... Um, yeah, I just, uh, I, I, I liked that. I also, again, Charles Napier and, you know, shout out to, uh, to him as an actor, but also a bummer for Lieutenant Boyle having to get killed and have his face taken because yikes. Uh, so, <laughs> all right. I got to talk about a couple of scenes here. One of them is that scene where, where Hannibal gets out because it's gruesome. It's really, but it's again, there's no jump scares. We see kind of everything that's coming. The The most jump scare you get is him diving towards the camera and grabbing that guy's face to take a chunk out of it. Um, mm -hmm. And that's as close to a jump scare as you get. And it's really not. It's just, you know, it's it's sudden. And then after that, everything is very slow moving. Um, I don't know if this created the trope of uh, sort of disguising yourself as a as a injured police officer to get out of something but um it definitely helped popularize that in quite a way and you had mentioned a chick in the bucket of the red shirts my chick in the bucket would would have been hannibal lecter if not for that final scene because at an hour and 25 minutes into this movie is his last shot which is in the ambulance and then he's not mentioned again until the phone call at the end right which is yeah it seems like no one else is looking for him like they really yeah. didn't care that he was gone. I know. And it's weird 
to to do that, like to make a big deal about it, and then it's just like, oh yeah, but don't don't worry about that. You know, we'll we'll deal with him later. Um, and for her to get the phone call from him, uh, but man, that that plan he had and the way he got out of stuff, pretty brilliant, um, and well executed to use to switch clothing and be able to position that body, both of them, um, one uh, and and it's it's really kind of wild how he he sets the one body up as a decoy right so Mm -hmm. the one that's hanging there um that's meant to draw the attention so that nobody's paying attention then to what the other uh security guard or police officer looks like um and (sighs) that shot where he sits up and peels the the face off um in the ambulance i didn't see that coming (laughs) i i had no idea where he went. It, I was right there with the cops. I thought he was up there until they shot him, and I was like, "Oh, yeah." That's when they the sh- cop. when they shoot him in the leg and it doesn't flinch, yeah. Uh huh. Um, but so I yeah. didn't know where he went either. Like I, that was very brilliantly done. Yeah. Like, and, oh, okay. <laughs> yeah, and that's perfect because that you know the misdirection worked. The misdirection worked on you perfectly. Um, oh, I also like the misdirection that you think that the when the police are ringing the doorbell at the house in Chicago mm-hmm. you think it's ringing the killer's buffalo bills doorbell and it's not yeah like, again, i i totally was sold a well structured and obviously if you watch it again you're going to you know what the setup is so you can kind of you can kind of break it down and pinpoint a little better but what a well structured thriller moment to misdirect make you you know bring all your attention to one direction and then what's really happening is over here you know don't pay attention to this hand but that's all you can look at is the is the hand dangling keys meanwhile they're over here stealing your wallet um yeah but there's also tension too because she has the dog in the well he's mm -hmm. freaking out like what do you mean this thing has my dog you know because it's not a person to him yeah you know and you got clear, you, you had so many balls in the air, you couldn't follow them all. Yep. And then what was great was that whole, from the moment she enter, or from the moment he opens the door to her, is the start of the tension starts to slowly mm-hmm. ratchet up. And we, again, as an audience, we know who this is. And she doesn't. And so that's putting us on edge. And then you're watching her slowly put the pieces together and kind of figure out that something's not right. And you're seeing him figure out what's going on, too. So you've got two different characters in this scene, both of them figuring out the same, coming to the to the similar conclusion at the same time. Well, where is the audience being like, what the hell are you doing? Get out of there. Get out of there. You don't you don't want to be there or, you know, something along those lines. And then it just keeps getting more and more. It just keeps going. It keeps building. I do think she showed her hand a little too quick. I think she should have taken, because he he really wasn't doing any, like, yeah, she was on edge. It's creepy in there. You know, he's only had the house for two years, but he really wasn't doing anything. He he went to get that card, the business mm -hmm. card of the girl's son or whatever. I think I would have, even when she figured out, I think I would have taken the card to not tip him off that I know who he is. No, I think but they would have given her an extra second. It might have, and so you're saying maybe don't mention. Can I use your phone? Because that's really what tips yes. him off. Yes, 
Yeah, as soon as she did, because he, she said, oh, we're close to getting somebody. Mm-hmm. You know, because she says, I'm, in, I'm investigating, you know, Frederica's murder. Yeah. So that put him on edge. Like, that was a red flag for him. True. So I think the phone call, I, I, I just think she tipped her hand a little too soon. Yeah, I could see that. I did like his reaction though when she asked to use the phone, and he gets that kind of little uh-huh. bit of a like that just that little smile and laugh as he sort of covers his mouth from it for a second. Because uh, again, yeah. just super creepy, right? But again, he knows he. Mm-hmm. It, it, that's what I mean. Yeah. Like yeah. she tipped her hand a little okay, too yeah. quick. That can, hey, I've put this together. I can see where you're coming on that. Uh, and then, but then we get that great tension-filled thriller moment of she goes down into the basement and she finds the girl and of course the girl's screaming at the top of her lungs to get out of there and flip it out and it's just it just keeps building and building until the lights go out and the lights go out right after she sees the dead body in the bathtub which is the yeah. previous owner of the house then the lights go out and then we get the call back to his night vision goggles and that's where she gets stupid <laughs> it made me mad. Okay, so how so? Tell me, tell me, tell me that. Because you're an FBI agent, like it shows her going through all these trainings, all these different things. Like I would think you've had training when a lights go out. Like she loses her calm, she loses her shit, like completely emotional. Her the you see her like gun shaking. She's scared, which you would be, but like I. I would think she would have held herself, Clarice would have held herself together more than that. Like she's falling down and. Well, the falling down was because she couldn't see, right? She tripped Right, yeah. But she she was already, like he could have killed her at any time. Well, that's the thing. Yeah, that's the thing. That's, (laughs) That's the reason the tension is there because we know that. We're seeing not only through his eyes, but we know that we know that he knows where she is at any point and can kill her at any time he wants to. And, and she is, I just think she should have gathered herself quick. Like, you know what I mean? Like she came through all this. I just would have liked to seen her freak out the, like, like, no Clarice, you know, keep calm, keep yourself together. And like, I don't know. She just fumbles and she almost drops her gun and, I, I can I can I just, see that. I think also though, with we had a, a quick moment with her earlier on when she first left the asylum, where she breaks down and starts kind of crying mm-hmm. by her car, and it's sort of one of those things where it's like, throughout the whole of everything that was going on in the asylum leading up to that, she held it together really well. I mean, she held together everything that happened with Migs, both what he said to her and then what he threw at her. Um, yeah. And, she and that's what I mean. That's together. why I was disappointed when shit hit the fan that she didn't hold herself together until afterwards, because that's what she did at the asylum. Like you said, she held herself together through all of that. And then when she was by herself, yes, I understand she broke down. Mm-hmm. Anybody would, you know, but when it mattered, she kept herself collected. And I just didn't like seeing her fall apart, you know, because the lights went out. <laughs> well, uh, but I think for me, she holds it together so much right up until that point, and that was sort of the the last thing that was keeping her safe 
was she could still see what she was doing as she was moving through the house. She's dealing with the, the girl yelling and screaming, and she's trying to keep her quiet, trying to keep her calm. She knows this guy is somewhere in the house. He's obviously a killer, and she's figured out that he's Buffalo Bill. And now, like, the the final thing that that broke her was the lights go out because now she lost any advantage that she's got. You're right in that she had held together really well up until that point. But I, I don't feel as though she uh, – she also didn't get hysterical. No, no, she didn't. But – And she – got it together when she heard the gun and it's like okay he's behind me and it shoots him well and you know credit to her for not hesitating either because she sort of hesitated exactly. earlier she did the whole freeze don't move and he got away so when she hears that she doesn't hesitate and just unloads on him and then immediately reloads the weapon to shoot him again if she needs to um so yeah but that whole scene is just tension filled and in part again because we know more than she does and so as an audience, you're just like, come on, he's right there. And she doesn't know that. And so like when he's reaching out and almost touching her, but not. Oh, yeah, I was holding my breath. <laughs> exactly. I was exactly. like, oh, don't touch her. No, stop. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it happened <laughs> a couple did, of um, times. I did read in the wiki, though, uh, about the book uh, that he says how to her, how does it feel to be beautiful? Um, that that was his dying breath to her. Oh. I, I kind of wish they would have put that in the movie. That would have been interesting. Added a little bit. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah. It it says um, you know, in the novel he addresses his final words to her, asking her, "How does it feel to be so beautiful?" I think that would have gave a little bit of closure, or just something for his character. Like I was like, "Wow, that's pretty profound." I, I would have liked to have. Yeah. Had that in the movie. That would have been pretty cool. Uh, one of the things this movie did really cool um, that I, I very much liked uh, is, did you notice the camera work? Specifically, close-ups and eyelines. Because I'm, I'm curious how that made you feel with the way that, like, the way conversations were being filmed. Did, um, did it... I noticed the eyelines when... Like she walks into the um, funeral home and the uh, Crawford and the sheriff go away and she's looking at all of these men. It made me uncomfortable. Okay. But I didn't know if that's because I'm looking at it. I've been in that situation. So I know what that feels like. So it was heightened. <laughs> it's some of that. It's designed that way. Um, if you notice, almost every conversation the way that they shoot them is they put the camera in between the actors, right? So when in the beginning, when she's having a conversation with Crawford in his office, we're not seeing over her shoulder and or or a two shot. We're all we're seeing is Crawford's face, right? So it's her POV, mm-hmm. and he's looking straight down the camera. But then when it goes to her, she's looking just slightly off camera, right? She's not looking directly into the camera. She's looking just a little bit off. And then it goes back to him, and he's looking straight at it. And if you if you pay attention, Crawford, it, it does that in the conversation with Crawford, with Chilton, with Lecter. Um, you brought up all the all the guys in the funeral home. So many times, even um, the Paul Lazar character, um, Pilchner, uh, he's looking directly at the camera. Jonathan Demi, who is the director of this, made it a point to kind of create that and make you uncomfortable as a viewer. 
and you probably more so even than than I am. And I, as I'm watching it, I'm feeling uncomfortable because again, you're put in this position where you are Clarice and you're just being stared at by all these people and all these men who are looking and, and it's almost always kind of looking slightly down too, right? So there's the power mm-hmm. dynamic at play um, in part because she's shorter than them, but also as a power dynamic of like the men are above her type of thing. So that was a conscious effort by them to sort of make that be that way throughout the whole thing. So uh, I'm kind of, well, I, I don't like hearing that you were uncomfortable. Like at the same time, you know, it's sort of, that was the point was it was meant to make you feel. Oh yeah. And I knew that, that was a point. Like, like, yeah, I wasn't uncomfortable watching it. It just, it I, gives you that sense I was of unease. Congratulating them that it, that, okay. What it, I realized you, that's the feeling you were <laughs> trying to get across and you did that very well <laughs> yes <laughs> you nailed it you were going for that and you hit the mark um yep. and it and it's throughout the whole movie and it's great and they even did things like um conversations with Lecter and starling they would be super super close on his like uncomfortably close on hannibal Lecter's face where his face takes up the whole frame and then cut to clarice and her face is like 50 percent of the frame and slightly off center. And so again, there's that power dynamic at play subconsciously where he's bigger, he's more powerful, she doesn't have as much power, but then they might switch that up and have the camera come in just a little bit closer on her in certain lines. There's the great thing when she comes back from the storage unit and she's sitting down in front of his uh, cell and she's sitting on the floor talking to him. And when they reach the point where they're sort of on equal footing, she stands up. And so she sort of levels the eye level for both of them. It's no longer him looking down at her and her looking up at him. And so I kind of like mm-hmm. little things like that too. Like it's just, it's really cool the way that they did that. I think I subconsciously noticed it, but I liked it because you felt like you were there mm-hmm. while they were talking. And yes. I did like a lot of that, how that was filmed. Um, yeah. It's made me that, more invested. Yeah. Yeah. It's that uh, there's like a voyeuristic part of it but also it puts you in the middle of it Um, Mm -hmm. because there's a few times where they do shoot it with kind of coverage right where you see you know it's over the shoulder of Hannibal Lecter so you see the outline of him and it's her talking but most of the conversations are just one face on screen at any time and uh, to me that was just really effective because it makes you it puts you in the middle of it it makes you feel weird and you can't yeah, quite and, explain why when you when you're in the moment. Yeah, until you explain that, like as you're describing the camera work and everything, like okay, this all makes sense to me now. You know um, why I felt so invested. I I do like the one other note I had is that um, I like Tainable Lecter. Like he forced her to think outside the box mm-hmm. past her FBI training. Yes. You know. Yep he realizes she's smart and he gives her the uh, case file. All you needs in here. Yeah. Yeah. He was always giving her just enough of what she needed for her to figure it out. And I, I liked that. Um, a couple bits of trivia I did want to mention. So uh, da, 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 when characters, okay, I mentioned that when characters are talking to Starling. Um, so when Lecter is moved from his Baltimore cell and they, they put him in the, the thing in, I think it's Memphis, Tennessee, um, originally mm-hmm. they were going to have him and you actually see it in the scene in the airport. He's wearing like an orange jumpsuit with the straight jacket and the the mask. But then if you notice when he gets to his cell, he's in all white. 
Um, and that was a thing Hopkins actually convinced him, uh, to do that because it would make him seem more clinical and kind of unsettling if he was dressed in pure white. And honestly, I love that because you're used to seeing inmates in like yellow or orange, uh, or even sometimes like a dark blue. And here's Hannibal Lecter in all white. And so it's just very different because I can't think of another, another inmate uh, of any kind where you've seen him we've seen them in that color or lack of color. Yeah. It made that scene too, where he was beating the cop more, seem more violent because you have seeing the blood splash yep. onto the white. Yes. That too. Yep. Yep. Outfit. So you got that nice contrast of the blood red all over the white and Oh, just, just it's little touches like that, that add something to it. Right. Like the scene is still going to be creepy if he's wearing the standard prison issue orange. But it's it's like it's ten percent more because it's not that. So uh, I thought Agreed. that was cool. Uh, twenty four minutes and fifty two seconds of screen time. Anthony Hopkins uh, is the second shortest ever to win Academy Award for Best Actor in a Leading Role. There was one other. I think it was David Niven uh, back in the fifties who was like forty or fifties or sixties who was under under twenty four minutes uh, of screen time and won a Best Actor. Um, Anthony Hopkins and Jodie Foster only share four scenes in the entire movie. Now, they're they're protracted and they're fairly long, but there's a lot of this movie that is not the two of them on screen together. Um, and in fact, they the only physical contact they make throughout the entire movie is that one little finger uh, movement um, as he's handing her her case file. Mm-hmm. Other than that, it's always behind bars. I also, the, uh, the glass cell for Hannibal Lecter... Um, was partly so that it was easier to shoot because they were having trouble kind of making it look the way they wanted with the bars. And then when they put him behind bars in the other set, uh, they actually, but the bars are too far apart to be an actual like cell, but they had to do that so they could shoot it because otherwise you'd have like a bar in the middle of his face and it just looked terrible. Um, let's see. Hopkins, he, he did a lot of research on serial killers, and he also used a little bit of influence, according to this, from uh, HAL 9000 in 2001, sort of that cold, um, emotionless kind of speech in parts. And yet other times he would get very emotional, and you could really feel things in his, in his speech pattern. So it, was, it vacillated, and I kind of liked that. Um, yeah, they also led up in the beginning that you know, when he talked about or when he ate the girl's face that his heart rate never got above like 85 or something like that. Like he was calm the entire time. Yep. Yep. And in fact, in the ambulance scene, uh, if you listen to the paramedic, he says that his blood pressure is whatever over 90 and his blood, his uh, heart rate is 84. Mm. So, um, and this one I had to, I have to mention this because really this was an actual piece of trivia on IMDb for this movie. And it goes as, and I'm quoting, in the last scene, Lecter's I'm having an old friend for dinner should be understood literally. Really? Did, did you did you watch this movie? Of course it's supposed to be understood literally. That's the point of the joke. It just made me roll. My, I, my eyes rolled really hard when I read that one. I'm like, oh, come on. Somebody thought enough to have to actually put that on IMDb? that you should take that literally. Of course it meant it literally. He's going to eat Dr. Chilton. Why? Because Dr. Chilton pretty much made his life hell for eight years. 
So. Yeah. Yeah. I, I was like, here, I, I would hand him the barbecue sauce. Here you go. <laughs> here you go. Here's a little, here's a little ketchup. It goes good yeah. with Dr. Chilton. Oh. Yeah. And and again, it's a credit to the actor, uh, Anthony Hield, to make Dr. Chilton such a smarmy, dislikable character. And that is slightly different from the end of the book. Because I think the book ends with Lecter sending her a note. Like a, letter, a letter, yes. Um, and it doesn't nah, it doesn't mention anything by name. It's just like a, basically a letter saying, I'm not going to come after you. Please do the same for me. Um, mm-hmm. And the way the movie ends with the phone call, I like. I like it because, again, it's sort of the catharsis of like this character who has done terrible things but also is getting something for him. But he's just slipping off into a crowd and... We, we don't know what's going to happen after that, no. I do like she tells him, like, I can't promise you that. Yes. And he knows that. Like, he knows when he called her that that would be her response. He's smart enough and he, he understands things well enough to know that. So, uh, um, Does he um, admire her? Like, why? I think a little I, bit, yeah. I was confused why he didn't. Like, I understood when she said he would think it was rude. Like, they made a rapport at that point. Mm-hmm. But I don't know what endears her to him so much. I think some of it is he sees an aptitude in her, but also her willingness to play along and tell him these, you know, kind of darker secrets of her life when she was younger. The whole thing with the 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 lambs and and all of that. Like she showed a vulnerability, um, and because the thing about it is, like Hannibal Lecter is he's a horrific, horrible monster, according to uh, Dr. Chilton. Um, And he definitely has that in him, but he's also uh, been portrayed as, I don't want to say an anti-hero, but like he, you know, he kills people. He kills people for reasons, but then sometimes he kills them for no reason. Like there's uh, the the character, the head in the jar in the book was a flautist in the Baltimore Symphony Orchestra that Lecter killed simply because he was a terrible flautist and he didn't like him in the orchestra. Mm. So, like, there's stuff like that. I don't know. It's it's interesting, but it, something about her intrigued him, and I think it's, like, her a combination of her aptitude and her uh, her her earnestness. Um, and so, yeah, there is some admiration there from him, I think, for her. And not sort of like in a, a worthy adversary, a little bit of a worthy adversary, a little bit of like, you know, the, there's no reason for her to not be in the, like the way he puts it, the world is more interesting with you in it. And so I think that's just the way he views it and it works and it just makes him creepier. <laughs> I did read in the, um, the Wikipedia, like I said, I went down a rabbit hole cause I wanted more and I knew there'd be more like in the book, but obviously not having time to read the book so sure uh i went to the internet and it did say that there was a scene that they were talking with the john hopkins doctor Mm -hmm. um that is now missing from the movie but it's on the dvd because there was such outrage from the um uh the transsexual community they didn't like how they were portraying I, them and comp- 
and yeah, calling I, him one. But even though they don't, he s- expresses that is not what he is. Yeah. He thinks he's that, but he's not. He doesn't fit into this box. Yeah, I don't remember that scene, so I can't say one way or the other, but I could understand that uh, that happening. That was one of the things I actually yeah. kind of appreciated was that <clears throat> they don't try they don't try to make it seem as though Buffalo Bill's problem is anything other than he had a traumatic childhood and he's mm. prone to violence. And basically whatever broke him is that and and so he's using all these other things as um escapes but they're not really what he what he is type of thing so but i don't know i don't know the scene in question so i can't can't really say yeah it it says it's on the the dvd so i'm curious um it wasn't on the dvd that i had about it um but i will have to i will have to search that out and and watch that Mm. sometime so and the wiki also said sorry um that they give a different route he gives a different ruse to the senator oh um, i don't and i don't know why they changed it in the movie but they call him a bill rubin ribbon so yeah it's uh it's a color (laughs) yeah it's a pigment in poo and uh they just changed it i kind of like it going to um the name that he gives of being an anagram for iron sulfite and fool's gold um Mm -hmm. I think that was just basically the screenwriter saying, well, you know, I like the idea of this, but it's going to make more sense. It's like changing the type of wine that he had with the liver and the fava beans. In the book, it was a different wine. They changed it to Chianti because that was something that American audiences would understand a lot more. And I think think that's sort of where they were going with – changing and i like that she's the one that figured it out like she already knew it was a puzzle Mm -hmm. totally i love that um yeah this so okay here's a question for you there are uh one two three four five i think five movies plus a tv series that are all based around hannibal lecter and now that you have seen this are you interested to watch any of the other ones two of them are the same story manhunter and red dragon are the same story just two different versions of it. But there's Red Dragon, uh, this movie, Hannibal, um, and then there's also Hannibal Rising, which I have not seen, and the series Hannibal that had Mads Mikkelsen. Um, Are you interested in all in any of those? Did this make you kind of more interested in the character of Hannibal Lecter and seeing more stories that way, or you kind of a one-and-done, little little too creepy? No, no, I'm totally interested. I actually was going to ask you if Hannibal was worth watching. I I wanted your opinion before, because I know how sequels are sometimes, you know, <laughs> you want more and then they, you have high expectations and they let you down. <laughs> I would, I would say I didn't hate it. I saw it in theaters. Um, I think it came out in 2000 and it's, it's good. It's not as good as this one, um, but it is, it is still a decent movie. Uh, just you know, watch it knowing that it's not going to be what this movie was. Nothing, nothing else Hannibal Lecter wise that I have seen really hits this level. Like it doesn't quite, it's got a lot of the same ingredients, but they don't quite coalesce in the same way. Um, this movie just hit all the marks. Part of it is Jodie Foster's not in Hannibal. Um, the character is played by Julianne Moore. So mm. they did a little different casting. Um, and there's nothing wrong with Julianne Moore, but 
just you know, kind of t- take that with you when you watch it. I think it's worth watching for sure. I think that one, I think Red Dragon or Manhunter, either one of those, if not both, because they're they're different tellings of the same story um, are pretty good. That one deals with, again, it's structurally rather similar to Silence of the Lambs where an FBI agent is going to Hannibal Lecter to get information about a serial killer that's going on right now. Um, whereas Hannibal is much more of a Hannibal's out on the loose. We got to go find him. They're hunting him down. They're tracking him. So that's another reason why it's slightly different, but I I think they're worth watching for sure. And I'm glad that that's something that you want to pursue a little bit more because the character is fascinating. Um, but I'm really glad that you like this movie too. So yeah, like I even like went back and watched parts so I could make notes and, Excellent. Did I miss things here? Because, and like I said, I went for an hour. I was mad because my internet went down because <laughs> I was trying to do a, a deeper dive into the character, especially the Buffalo Bill. Like, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I, I just would like a little bit more of what was going on with him because he was all over the place. He was, and that's that is part of what makes him scary and. And it's a powerful story when you're like, I want to find out more about this character. I want to know more. And if a if a movie can make you ask those questions, then it's doing something right. So that's that's awesome. I'm I'm glad that you went down that hole. I'm sorry that your internet went out for a little bit though. Isn't oh, that that's always, okay. Isn't that always the case it, though? I was like, I need questions answered. No. <laughs> <laughs> um, I have a couple of quick clips I want to play uh, because you can't. You can't talk about this movie without playing some audio of Anthony Hopkins um, because holy crap is everything he say just drip um, such as I'll have to catch him Clary something in the like the the tone of his voice almost makes your skin crawl right like he hits that pitch um, but especially when he's when he's playing uh, playing it like Oh, and Senator, just one more thing. Love your suit. <laughs> I love that line. I don't know why. It's just something about uh, the way he delivers it is great. Um, and one more. I agree. And you know he's playing with her. Like, oh, yeah. Oh, you know it. That's how you know he's he's playing a game. <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, I got a couple more quick ones I'm going to play. The possibly most famous line from the movie. A census taker once tried to test me. I ate his liver with some fava beans and a nice Chianti. Um, let's see. Uh, oh, he would consider that rude. I don't. I just love that too. Like, no, he's not going to come after me. He would consider that rude. Um, and the fact and that I liked she her figured friend's it out. Face. Yeah, her friend's her face friend's was great. Like, like what? <laughs> <laughs> Oh, what are you saying? Um, and then finally, because again, pro- if if the eating his liver with some fava beans and a nice Chianti isn't the most famous line from this movie, it's this one. It rubs the lotion on its skin or else it gets the hose again. Like people who've never seen this movie, probably you, uh, know that line. So, yeah, good, yeah, good stuff. Yeah, um, and Anthony Hopkins saying, hello, Clarice. Yeah, so that it's interesting. That's not actually the line in this movie. That's misquoted. Oh. Uh, he he says, "Good evening, Clarice," 
Um, but that hello, Clarice, doesn't happen until the movie Hannibal. Uh, but everybody associates it with this movie, and that gets misquoted. And I think, actually, they put it in Hannibal kind of as a little bit of an in-joke. Because you, you expect it. And every time I watch the movie, I'm reminded, oh, that's right, he doesn't actually say, hello, Clarice. He either says, good evening, or I think the first time he just says, hello. Mm. It's weird. It's weird how our brains I, trick ourselves I thought ourselves it was when like he that. called. But yeah, now I have to go back and watch it. But I think you're right. He says, good evening. So, yeah. But, uh, th- go ahead. Go ahead. Oh, yeah. No, I just, I did like that Crawford, when she uh, graduated, he was proud of her. Yes. And smiled. And I was thinking, like, yeah, if she, uh, if she doesn't graduate after all the <laughs> crap she went through, there's something wrong. <laughs> I know. But, yeah, this is a great, great, great movie. I mean, look, you don't win... Academy Awards if you're a terrible movie. You know, regardless of what your thoughts are on the Academy Awards in general, you don't win awards like that without being a good movie. And this being one of three films ever to win Best Picture, Best Director, both act, both leading actors for, for Hopkins and Jodie Foster, and Best Screenplay. Um, it's pretty amazing. So if you haven't seen it before, it's worth checking out. Now, mind you, it's dark. It is dark stuff, and you're going to feel, you may feel a little down afterwards because it's not like easy subject matter. Because one of the serial killers gets away at the end with basically no repercussions. And we also don't see kind of the, the only aftermath we see is Clarice getting her, her FBI badge. We don't see what happens with the, the girl um, who is in the well. Mm-hmm. Uh, we don't see any of that. So it, it's just sort of like it just kind of ends. And then they're like, oh, yeah, and she she became a full FBI agent and Hannibal Lecter's on the loose. Well, good night, everybody. Um, yeah, I did feel like there was a lot of loose ends floating about. <laughs> yeah. So like no follow up. Mm-hmm. Um, but definitely if if the subject matter isn't something that would uh, bother you, like I know a few people who just couldn't sit through this movie because it's, it's just too dark for them um but if it's not definitely check it out if you haven't already and if you have the thing watch is it again that they leave a lot which is always worse and i liked like even when he was killing the cops like he th- left a lot to your imagination mm-hmm. oh it's so and much scarier that way even with the buffalo bill like you saw him sewing with skin but like you didn't and they described the body in the funeral home of what, but you didn't see anything. Yes. That was actually probably made it worse. Absolutely. That was one of the things I liked about that particular scene was they unzip the bag and you get everyone's reaction to it, but you don't see the body until they flipped it over. And then you just see it in a wide shot for a short period of time before people kind of walk in front of it again. And I like that. Oh, yeah. That's so much more effective because now your brain is filling in those blanks. Your brain is filling in the blanks of what he does to the two police officers in that outside that cell. So, yeah, they described the, the body when they flipped it over that there were the two diamonds missing in her back. Mm-hmm. And that's when she puts it together when she sees the two diamonds measured out on the dress. Yeah. So being a sewer and my mother's a seamstress. <laughs> took a picture of the dress and said, what is she trying to do to this? Like, <laughs> I had to figure out, like, is this a tailoring technique? What is this? And my mom says she's either trying to take the dress in or she's trying to take it out. 
but because I've never seen that before. So I went down that rabbit hole too of <laughs> what is she trying to do to this dress? <laughs> I love that. That's amazing. Because I definitely like I didn't go that far. It just didn't it didn't occur to me. But that you know, at the same time, if I'm watching a movie that's got something that I'm, I'm familiar with, I definitely do that. So that's awesome. Um, but yeah, definitely watch this movie, people. It's it's good, Kit. I'm glad you got to watch it. And oh yeah, yeah, super fun. And like I said, yeah, I did want to watch more, but I needed a break and watch something happy. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yeah, go watch you know puppy videos on YouTube or something. Uh, balance things out a little bit. Because this... I watched The Martian. <laughs> okay, I guess that works. <laughs> oh, but it's good, good, good stuff. Um, so. Thank you. Thank you so much for being on this week. This oh, is thank fun. you for bringing it to me. Yes, yes. I had a great time. Excellent. Uh, if you want to hang out in the chat room uh, like Ace or Nisbet or Daniora or Faye, um, you can record the show Sunday nights, 8 p.m. Eastern time at twitch.tv slash Travis. And we record live uh, every Sunday. I have now done 142 shows in a row. So... Yeah, I'm Woo! weird, and I don't, I don't like to miss weeks. I, I can't help it. Um, also, uh, I do a podcast on horror movies specifically, and uh, we just recorded one on Anna and the Apocalypse, and uh, that's a fun, uh, that's a fun little musical holiday zombie movie that uh, is definitely worth watching. Um, but yeah, uh, this show records Sunday nights, and uh, and then it comes out on Wednesdays. TVstravis.com is the easiest place to find it, uh, but you can search any of your podcatchers, whether it's Google, Apple, Spotify, doesn't matter. Just search for Wait You Haven't Seen and uh, and look for uh, TV's Travis as the name, and you'll get it. If you do uh, watch the sh- uh, listen to the show um, or watch it live, either way, uh, leaving a rating and review helps the show become more discoverable um, to people who are just searching for shows on movies. I'm a small fish in a giant pond, so any anything you can do is super helpful, and I appreciate that. Um, now, next week, I've got J.F. Dubow coming back, uh, and we are going to talk about Attack the Block. And I am excited because I have heard so many good things about this movie, and I've never seen it. So um, I'm really, really looking forward to that. That's going to be next week. Right here at twitch.tv slash Kit. Once again, thank you so much for being here this week. This was fun. Uh, we'll, we'll have to figure out another one. We'll have to figure out a time to watch Panic Room. Keep the Jodie Foster train going. Excellent. Yes, thank you for having me. It's always a pleasure. And you um, you help out Brian Dunaway during the week on a, a couple of streams, don't you? Yes, we graveyard keep every Tuesday at 6 p.m. Eastern at Brian Dunaway on Twitch. Excellent. That's and, fun, uh, by the way. For, I for tried anybody. to tell him what to do, and he doesn't listen. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds about right. Sounds about right. Um, all right. Excellent. Well, again, uh, thank you, and uh, come on back next week, everybody, and listen to me go off about uh, Attack the Block. Um, hopefully it's as good as everyone has built it up to be. Um, but until then, remember to enjoy your movies. And it's getting cold out there, so be careful and be excellent to each other. I would ask my driver to help you, but he detests physical labor.
Diamond Club hopes you have enjoyed this program. <laughs>